Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, and thank you for joining us for ASHP's Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Daniel Gerald, and I will be your host today for the ASHP Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. I'm an emergency medicine pharmacist at Banner University Medical Center, Tucson campus, which is associated with the University of Arizona. I'm also the current PGY2 Emergency Medicine Program Director for our institution. Today's topic is Envenomations of the Southwest, an Arizona perspective. Part one of this podcast will focus on rattlesnake envenomations, and part two will focus on scorpion envenomations, both of which are some of the most common envenomations encountered in the Southwest. With me today are two experts in this area. First is Dr. Steve Dudley. Steve is the director of the Arizona Poison and Drug Information Center. He completed his PharmD as well as a two-year toxicology fellowship at the University of Arizona. He is also a diplomat of the American Board of Applied Toxicology. Our second expert today is Dr. Dan Massey. Dan is a PGY-1 trained clinical pharmacist at Banner University Medical Center, Tucson. He is the curator of venomous reptiles at the Arizona Poison and Drug Information Center with interest in venom compositions. He considers himself a self-taught naturalist with a passion for all wildlife. Thank you both for joining us today, Steve and Dan. So Steve, I'd like you to start out by telling us about the Arizona Poison and Drug Information Center and how it operates. Oh, absolutely. So the Arizona Poison and Drug Information Center, we're a regional poison center that covers 14 out of 15 counties in Arizona. We are staffed by specially trained pharmacists who have an additional board certification in poison information. What's unique about our poison center is one, we're staffed 100% by pharmacists. Some poison centers are at the pharmacist model, some have the nursing model. And on top of that, every pharmacist that works here, they answer the phones does have that additional certification. So that's pretty unique. Our role is to provide uh, overdose and envenomation guidance to physicians, nurses, pharmacists, really any healthcare professional that has a patient that presents with these overdoses. And we also see patients at the bedside at a couple of hospitals in Arizona. So we provide phone coverage as well as bedside consult service. Thanks for the background on the Poison Center, Steve. What would you say specifically is the role of either yourself and or the Arizona Poison Center with regards to rattlesnake envenomations here? Oh, absolutely. So we have, a, again, a pretty unique setup. So I am the director of the center, but I am also a clinical toxicologist. So my role is to help healthcare providers manage these envenomations, which if you don't see these often, there are a lot of pitfalls in places where errors can be made. So really we're here to optimize patient care and provide that consistent expertise uh, because we see hundreds of these envenomations every year. And we're extremely lucky because we also have Dan Massey, which most poison centers don't have. And Dan, I'll let Dan explain sort of his role, but he does provide a very valuable service to us as well. So yeah, thanks, Steve. So I get to help out with the identification of snakes. It's something I really have a passion with, so it's pretty cool. I can identify snakes either by images that are emailed in or text into individuals at the Poison Center. 
or individuals that come into the hospital envenomated, they actually bring a picture of the snake in on their phone and I'll be called to the bedside, take a look at it and identify the snake at that time. On rare occasions, individuals might even bring in an animal into the emergency room. This obviously is not something that we recommend, but if they do, I'll go down and take a look as well. I also help with research projects from other universities throughout the United States that might need help with venom research or actually specimen collections. And right now we're working with a biologist in town who's doing telemetry on the Mojave rattlesnake. So it's really cool. We're starting to see how these snakes move about during the day and when they're most active during the summer and monsoon seasons. Thanks, Dan and Steve. So Dan, just to follow up on some of the things that you mentioned, I know you mentioned a Mojave rattlesnake. How many different species of rattlesnakes are in Arizona? So in Arizona, we have 15 different species of rattlesnakes. Very cool. We have two different genuses. We have 14 in the genus Crotalus. So I'm going to nerd out a little bit here on your air. But Crotalus are what I consider your classic rattlesnakes. So these are your Western Diamondbacks, your Mojave rattlesnakes, your Sidewinders. And then we have one species in something called a genus called the Cisterus. This is a Masasaga. These are a smaller species of rattlesnake. They maybe get about two feet long. So it's pretty cool. We have two or 15 total species. We also have the largest diversity of venomous reptiles anywhere in the United States. Within about a two-hour drive of Tucson, you can encounter up to 10 different species of rattlesnakes. So really, really cool. If you're into venomous reptiles, into venoms or rattlesnakes, man, I'm telling you, this is the mecca right here. So since there are so many rattlesnakes here in Arizona and working here myself for probably a decade, I, I get to see a lot of rattlesnake envenomations. But what would you say are the most common rattlesnake envenomations encountered in Arizona? So I get that a lot. And although this is a difficult question, the easiest answer on this is the most common envenomations are due to the most common rattlesnakes. So our most common rattlesnakes are the Western Diamondback. They're called a Crotalus atrox or the Mojave rattlesnake, which is called a Crotalus cuchillatus. So not only are these the most widely distributed rattlesnakes in Arizona, but they happen to love the same elevation and the same climate as Phoenix and Tucson. Well, Phoenix and Tucson, of course, have most of the population of Arizona in them. So with these hand in hand, you're gonna have more encounters with them. Also in residential areas, they tend to do a lot of landscaping with irrigation. This brings a water source along with a food source into their yards. So these animals move along with those water and food sources. So again, you just have more interactions with these two species. Okay, so it sounds like it's very ubiquitous across the major cities here in Arizona. <laughs> so Steve, with regards to the poison center, how many animations per year do you guys get called about or see personally? Yeah, so we have about 170 venomations every year. We have a rattlesnake season that tends to be April to October, but the reality is we've had an venomation every month of the year. So, you know, you're, you're never not safe, but uh, definitely uh, peak times, late spring, throughout the summer, and then uh, early fall. Okay. What would you say the typical demographic of a rattlesnake envenomation is? Is there a certain person that's more at risk for these? Yeah, so so that, that, that's, that's a good question. So historically, there was this whole argument of the 70s. And these were the people who were most likely to be envenomated. And it stood for uh, toothless, tequila, t-shirt, truck with a gun rack, missing teeth, 
<laughs> um, and then the list kind of goes on. And so really what all that meant was you had people generally young or testosterone, generally young men who will go out and aggravate the snake, play with it and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm macho. I can pick the snake up. Watch. And then they get tagged. What we're actually seeing, though, is that that whole demographic really has proven not to be true for us. The majority of our rattlesnake envenomations are people doing yard work, people gardening, outside hiking, one of the beautiful trails out here. Mostly we have lower extremity envenomations. People just really mind their own business. And snakes aren't aggressive, don't get me wrong, but we are increasingly in their territory and people not necessarily watching out or being hypervigilant does sort of lead to that perfect storm of, of bad outcomes. And then the other thing as well is that we're seeing the median age is 46 years old. So again, it's not the majority of these young guys who are getting tagged, but regular everyday folks out doing their activities, doing their hobbies. Now, don't get me wrong, about 15% of our snake bites or our snake bites are people messing with it, picking it up, et cetera. But uh, the majority is not that. Okay, great. So Dan, since there's so many different types of rattlesnakes in Arizona, is there anything different about them in terms of their venom structure or composition? That's a great question. And since there is a difference in venom composition, that's why we get different presentations of envenomations. So rattlesnake venoms are a complex mixture of many, many different proteins. There's four main classes that I'll kind of hit on real quick. There's one called snake venom metalloproteases. What these do is cause a breakdown of protein structures, basal membranes, etc. This helps pre-digest their prey like rats and mice that they eat, but it does the same thing in humans, right? It's going to break down our tissues and it's going to cause leaking vessels and whatnot. There's also searing proteases. There's three in this class. These actually are the catalysts for hydrolysis of fibrinogen. So it causes rapid depletion of fibrinogen. Again, in prey, that's going to lead to hemorrhage and humans, possibility of the same issue, right? There's also phospholipase A2s. We call them PLA2s. There's two classes of these. There's some that work on sodium channels, and there's some that work on myotoxicities. So the sodium channels can actually inhibit acetylcholine release. This can cause some of your neurotoxic responses. And again, in their prey atom items, this causes immobility or, you know, it's going to stop them from moving. And like Steve was mentioning before, we're a much larger animal. So it doesn't affect us in the same way, but we'll still have a lot of these issues. And then the last thing um, is your myotoxins. So these are going to affect some of your calcium and your your excitable membranes and your neurons and your muscles, again, causing a lot of prey immobilities, but it's going to cause a lot of these secondary issues in human envenomations. Now, all these proteins could be in different percentages depending on the snake or the location of the snake. And that's what's really fascinating. So if you have 90% of one of these and very, very low percentages of the others, you're going to present differently, whether it be massive tissue swelling or maybe just blood dyscrasia, like Steve was saying. And so that's why it's so important to get into the hospital, actually get lab work done, spend your eight hours and make sure that it's not just a dry bite because it's dependent on these venom compositions. Wow, you're absolutely right. That is really fascinating. I didn't realize it was that in-depth and there were so many differences that you could see. With oh, man, we could nerd out all day, right, Steve? I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg, but it's really, really interesting. 
how would you say the type of rattlesnake influence treatment decisions? And then let's say someone does get a rattlesnake envenomation or we think it's an envenomation. What type of first aid measures are recommended? Sure. So for us, fortunately, the type of rattlesnake doesn't matter. So with both anti-venoms on the market, they will treat all U.S. rattlesnakes. That's not an issue. The issue, and I think we'll hop in a little bit later about this, is when you have non-rattlesnakes. So again, to nerd out like Dan did earlier, there is an indication difference between the two main anti-venoms on the market, Crofab and Anavib. And generally speaking, Crofab is approved for all crotalids in the U.S., which going back to our, our taxonomy, crotalids or crotalinase, that's a subfamily. So you have a bigger umbrella. Anavip is only approved for rattlesnakes, which is just the genus Crotalus and the genus Cicerus. So in layman's terms, you get more coverage with Crofab by FDA indication. In the U.S., that's only two uh, snakes, the copperhead and cottonmouth, which in Arizona we don't have, so not a big deal. We also have a coral snake. Again, not a rattlesnake, but the coral snake out here is not really venomous. So when somebody says, I got tagged by a snake, I got bit by a snake, if they're showing symptoms, either anti-venom is going to work. Uh, the one thing I will say, though, is the allergic reaction potential is one that may guide therapy. So Crofab is made from a host animal that's sheep, and Anavip is made from a host animal that uses horses. And so if you have a sensitization or allergies to horses, you may want to be cautious with Anavip. But a little known fact, with Crofab, the enzyme that's used to cleave it is papain. And so if you have allergies to papaya or pineapples, that also could be a potential for an allergic reaction with that. So other than the allergic reaction basis from a pure will this work standpoint, both are indicated and approved. So let's say someone does get envenomated or we think that they have an envenomation. Will, will all bites lead to a specific envenomation profile? And then also if someone does get bit by a snake, what type of first aid measures should we employ? So from a first aid standpoint, there really is nothing over the counter that's going to help you with rattlesnake envenomations. The same we have here is your first aid kit is a cell phone and car keys because you, you got to get to the hospital. Anti-venom is the only thing that is going to help. So from a first aid standpoint, really what we recommend is car keys and a cell phone. There is nothing over the counter, nothing from a first aid standpoint that is going to help you with our rattlesnakes. The problem with rattlesnake envenomations is that they look or can look so different. And so you can have a bunch of local issues, which the average person says, oh, this looks bad. I need help. Or it could be all blood issues or coagulopathies, which you can't necessarily tell just by looking at it. So you need to go to the hospital. There's nothing you can do beforehand that's going to alter the course. The only treatment is anti-venom, and you will need labs to fully assess how potentially bad the envenomation is. Okay. Would you say that there is always a need for antivenom when someone gets bit by a rattlesnake? So as far as always a need, that's, that's kind of a catch-22, so to speak. Like Steve mentioned, if you're bit by a rattlesnake, it is a medical emergency and you need to get into the hospital. It, it's just plain and simple. There could be delayed onset of envenomations up to hours. So really, if you're bit, you need to get into the hospital. But whether or not that means a patient actually was envenomated, that, that's a different topic. So about 25% of rattlesnake bites are what we consider dry bites, meaning they bite, the fangs go into the patient, they leave marks, but they don't envenomate or they don't inject venom into the patient. 
So those are considered drive bites, but they're still a medical emergency. You should be in the hospital and you should be under observation to rule out any of these other issues going on. Like Steve mentioned again, some of these cause blood dyscrasia. So you only know if you're envenomated by actually getting blood work or getting your lab work done. It won't show outward signs of swelling and bruising, et cetera, like some of the other ones will. So again, I, I want to really stress medical emergency over and over again. Then if you're lucky enough to be one of the few that get a dry bite, hey, at least you're at the right facility. You just set back a few hours and you go back home. Okay, so moral of the story is you get bit by a rattlesnake. It's most likely you got envenomated. There's a small chance that you didn't, but the only way to know for sure is you need to get a higher level of care at the hospital with that healthcare provider. Yeah, and if I can add to that, some other things you don't want to do, and this is just the beauty of working in a poison center and seeing all sorts of crazy stuff, the things that you don't want to do, like do not cut inside. Uh, these are high pressure injections. You're not going to suck that out. I don't care what Indiana Jones says. It's, it's not going to work. Really, you're just introducing more bacteria into the womb, which could lead to more problems. Tourniquets are not effective for us. Ice, anything that constricts the blood vessels, you really want to avoid. Our best defense against rattlesnakes is that we're a lot bigger than their prey. And so a saying we have in talks is the solution to pollution is dilution. So you want that venom to be circulating through being diluted down to have a less effect. Anything you do that will constrict blood vessels and leave that venom concentrated in the area or an extremity makes it potentially so much more worse. And I feel like I have to say it's because this has happened in real life. Don't electrocute. We've had, we've had people said they, they've read online that if you electrocute the venom, you can shock the proteins and render them harmless. And, and that's not true. We just deal with third degree burns on top of uh, the venom we have to treat you with or treat you for. It's, it's amazing what people think of or, or try to do for these. So I know we've already mentioned the intermittent and crofeb, the uh, current antivenoms on the market. And since not every rattlesnake bite will cause envenomation, what would be the criteria for initiating this therapy? And then would there be any reason to recommend one of these therapies over another? Sure. So in terms of initiating anti-venom, they're saying is time is tissue. And really what you're looking for is any systemic sign or anything that is not consistent with a mechanical injury in terms of local symptoms. So when you have somebody who was envenomated, let's say on the foot, if there's any swelling that is again, more profound than what you would see if you had accidentally put a nail through your foot. That, that That's a sign of, hey, this is going to be a problem we should treat now. And then as well, getting a blood work is so important because you can have an extremity look completely stone cold normal. And then the patients can be completely thrombocytopenic or they have hypofibrinogenemia and you know, they, they can't clot. So Anything that's more than just that local one spot is assigned to treats. In terms of the differences, again, both are going to get you coverage for rattlesnakes. If you're listing this from Texas and East, then you have the, the potential argument of, well, are we using an FDA indication or using an on-label treatment for copperheads and cotton mouths? And I think that's a whole different discussion that you could get into. But for in terms of us in Arizona, any signs of systemic toxicity or anything that's more than just that local thing, we will treat. There is this concept of control, meaning that if you have some swelling and our threshold is an inch an hour. So if you have swelling that's progressing more than that, you don't have control 
you need to continue to treat. And that goes for, for both antivenoms. Okay, awesome. Could you elaborate a little bit on the blood dyscrasias that we were talking about? I know you mentioned the low fibrinogen making it difficult to clot. What other blood abnormalities are we looking for on that uh, blood test? Sure. And the, the biggest things are going to be you're looking for a drop in platelets, which we very commonly see. And that's probably the first thing that we see as, as abnormal. The next thing is the drop in fibrinogen. Again, another thing we typically see early on that persists. And then H&H. And a really, really important thing that I think it's missed on a physical exam is if you have a patient who was envenomated, check their flank, check their back, because what happens is these patients lie in bed all day and they start pooling blood because they're having these coagulopathic effects. And you pull them up and they're just bruised all the way up and down the other sides of their back. So that could be something that's pretty easily missed. And like Dan mentioned earlier, you can have late onset uh, symptoms. And so we'll monitor these patients for at least eight hours, normally up to 12, because we've had patients be stone cold normal until the 10th hour. And then all of a sudden they drop very fast. So let's say we do decide to initiate antivenom. The patient is experiencing you know, the blood dyscrasias, the progressive tissue swelling. What would be the treatment regimen, whether you choose antivenom or profab? So how much of, of this are you going to be giving? And then are you going to need to continue it? What are kind of the, the usual ways that we do this? Absolutely. So with both antivenoms, you're going to have this concept of loading doses and potentially maintenance dosing. So we'll start with profab. That's the one that's been on the market longer. So for the Crofab, you have a loading dose of anywhere between four to 12 vials, depending on the severity. And normally we start with the four to six for our moderate envenomations. But if you have somebody who's a late presenter, they have swelling inches and inches or you know, up to the next joint. It looks pretty severe. Then you can go get up to 12. What's interesting is, so once you get this concept of control, so once the swelling is not progressing more than an inch an hour, or their platelets of fibrinogen are starting to either rebound back to the back towards baseline, or they've stopped becoming worse, then you go on to the next phase, which is maintenance dosing. Now, interestingly enough, with Crofab, you used to, by package insert, be required to give maintenance doses, which are two vials every six hours for three doses. Mostly, I think personally, not to jump in too much, but mostly I think that's a strategy based off competition in the market because now the package insert says two vial every six hours times three doses are recommended. And it's a subtle change, but it's very different. So you technically could get away with just giving a loading dose and monitoring, which some institutions in Arizona, they do. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's luck of a draw. With Anavip, you give a 10-vial loading dose up front, and there are no scheduled maintenance dosing. If you have a reemergence of symptoms, and it's really subjective, you can give a four-vial maintenance dose, and I'm using my air quotes, maintenance dose there, self-control. But then at that point, it becomes an argument of, do I give four? Do I give 10? And again, it's, it's more of an art at this point. It's a very gray area. And that's where the Poison Control Center definitely helps out to make those, those decisions or help you make those decisions. Okay. So it definitely sounds like it's not a one-size-fits-all approach for these patients. Hence why we do have you guys at the, the Poison Center to kind of help us. And I know you mentioned Crofab has recently changed from 
pretty much requiring maintenance doses to now it's just recommended to kind of change the terminology a little bit due to Anavip coming to the market and not requiring the maintenance dosing. What's different about the two products that allows for Anavip to not necessarily need to be given as maintenance doses? Yeah, absolutely. So Crofab is what we call a FAB1 fragment and Anavip is a FAB2. So if you can picture an antibody, you know, make your YMCA YPOs, right? You have two fractional antibodies and you have the FC portion. And so with CROFAB, it's just a smaller molecule. It's one arm of that antibody body. Anavip is FAB2, so it's both arms or two arms. So it's a larger product, double the weight. And what we think is because it's so much heavier that it doesn't get filtered and excreted as easily, so it sticks around for a lot longer. And you think about anti-venom compared to venom, Venom is a very large, complex molecule, so it's going to stick around for a very long time. And what we initially think is there's just a kinetic mismatch. So we give anti-venom, specifically profab, we excrete it, and then there's nothing left to combat the venom that's left over. With Anavib, you have less of an issue because it's sticking around longer, being able to neutralize the venom that's in the body. Okay, awesome. Are there any other supportive therapies that's recommended besides antivenom if we do have these people in the hospital? So the, the biggest thing will, that we typically see is going to be pain control. These things are, are very painful. Uh, you can see blebs and blisters, and sometimes there's an argument of, you know, should we roof these? Should we incise and drain? Because if they become circumferential, it can, again, constrict blood flow, which is, which is bad. And that's a very painful procedure, but the snake envenomation itself is very painful. The bigger issue is not giving the wrong things in terms of supportive care. So we talk about pain tolerance. Typically, we give opioids for that. What you don't want to do is give your NSAIDs or your aspirins or anything that can compound a potential coagulopathic situation. These patients are going to be lying in bed. They, they're very immobile. So we don't want to start a DVT prophylaxis. Maybe um, you know, SCPs may be a better thing if you need to do something. Something, again, that's not going to affect their blood work. And the biggest thing that I think it's overlooked a lot are PT and OT consults. So you want to make sure that you're doing everything you can from a physical standpoint to increase that blood flow, get that venom out of there and help it de-drain by the lymphatic system. And so we do recommend these consults just to make sure they're progressing as normal. But those are those are the big mainstays of non-anti-venom level support. And again, the biggest thing is just not doing something that's going to make the venomation worse. Okay, great. It's uh, good to hear all those little nuances there that some of us who don't do this very often probably <laughs> aren't aware of. So kind of to wrap up this section on the rattlesnake and venomations, what would be some other potential pitfalls that you guys see in practice when people are caring for these patients? Whether that's, you know, should we be giving antibiotics for these patients? Is there an infection risk? I know I've heard people discuss compartment syndrome for some of these patients. Can you guys comment on, on any of that stuff? Sure. So in terms of pitfalls, the biggest things are making sure that patient hasn't done something to harm themselves. And that goes back to pre-hospital care. So one of the big things that we always discuss is tourniquets and how ineffective they are for, for rattlesnakes. Well, the, the other, the additional part of that is if you had a, an envenomation and you put on a tourniquet and you had that tight pressure and you're having lysis of all your cells, if you just rapidly take that off, 
now you have all these dead cells, all these cytokines, et cetera, that's going through, and that's not good to have a rush in that system. So if there is a tourniquet, always put, always start anti-venom before you release suppression on a tourniquet to prevent any unplanned uh, adverse effects. The other thing is if you don't see rattlesnake envenomations a lot, they look horrible. They look absolutely terrible. And the blood work does look horrible as well. And so I think as healthcare professionals, we say, oh, this is bad. Let me directly treat that. And what I'm getting at is the blood work. So like, oh, they're anemic. Let me get them some blood products. Or, oh, you know, they're thomocytopenic. Let me do that X, Y, and Z. You're just adding fuel to the fire. There is no answer besides anti-venom. If you must, if you absolutely must give blood products, give it while anti-venom is running. Otherwise, you're you're just wasting money because that venom will destroy the blood products you just gave and they will do next to nothing. And then the last thing, like you mentioned, the compartment syndrome. So this is something that we wrestle with a lot and we've actually had the pleasure of being invited to the OR for fasciotomies to look um, because there's always this sort of debate. If you look at a rattlesnake envenomation, it's swollen, it hurts. If you strike it, it's going to be, uh, it, the pressure is going to be high. It looks like something, if you're trained to treat with cool steel, this looks like, yeah, I have the answer here. But the reality is that fascia, it, it, it's, it's perfectly healthy. It's, it's just the way the envenomation looks. And so if there's ever a concern, always, 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 we recommend a console of poison control. We'll be happy to come through and explain you know, why that's a bad idea. Is it possible to have compartment syndrome? Has there been a documented case in the history of the U.S.? Yes, there has been one. Is it a likely explanation? Absolutely not. 99.99999% of the times, it is not compartment syndrome, even though it looks and sounds like it is. And then the last thing I want to touch on, as you mentioned, antibiotics, really not, not necessarily in, in, uh, in rattlesnake envenomations. The way this all happens, there is really no concern from an infection standpoint. It's more likely to have an infection from picking at the wound, cutting with a dirty knife, putting your mouth on it, some bacteria that way, than just having germs introduced from the, the rattlesnake's mouth itself. Yeah, so thanks for the information, Dan. Uh, that data that uh, is there for not needing prophylactic antibiotics for these rattlesnake bites. I know as a pharmacist, we're often looked to for antimicrobial stewardship. So this is something that we can actually use at the bedside to say, no, actually the data doesn't support that. So here's where we can intervene. Is there anything else that you guys want to tell the audience about rattlesnake envenomations or the treatment of those? Or do you think we've kind of covered most of it today? Yeah, and and you know, Dan and I always joke about this. We can go on for hours, <laughs> hours and hours. There's, there's always more to discuss. But I think the the take home message from a podcast standpoint is you know, the poison centers are, are here to help. Again, we see hundreds of these a year, and we, we have that consistent experience. So, there's any if there's ever any questions about therapy, about administration, about what to stock. I, I answer. I get emails from hospitals across the nation saying, hey, what do you think about Crofab versus Anavib in my area, et cetera, et cetera. I'll be happy to share my experiences with that. And we don't make decisions for you, but I will give you all the information that I have available to help you come to the conclusion of what's best for your institution. Okay, great. So that's all the time we have today. I'd like to thank Steve Dudley and Dan Massey again for joining us to discuss part one, Rattlesnake Envenomations of the Southwest, an Arizona Perspective and bringing along their expertise. 
Join us here at ASHP Official every Thursday, where we will be talking with content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.